Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Mary Laura Philpot is an essayist, a humorist, a cartoonist, and a television host. That makes her a quadruple threat, at least. Her latest book is a hilarious memoir in essays called I Miss You When I Blink. I love author Ann Patchett's description. Mary Laura Philpot is relentlessly funny, self-effacing, and charming as she tells the story of living as a triple-A-plus perfectionist. In her willingness to tell her own story, she taps into a universal truth for so many women. We plan to do it all until we find we can't do anything anymore. I miss you when I blink made me laugh. It made me cry. I miss it already. You may miss Mary Laura Philpot too once this episode is over. But in the meantime, I think you're going to love getting to know her. I know I did. Mary Laura Philpot. Do you go by Mary Laura all I the do. time? I do. Thank whole, you. Yes. All of it. Both names. Uh, thank you for being on the Habit Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I'm looking me. forward to hearing hearing about your process. Specifically, where I want to start talking is in your in your book. Um, I miss you when you blink. You, I mean, you talk a lot about your perfectionism, mm-hmm. and I just have to read this this uh, quotation because it's so so stinking funny. <laughs> if success came in a snortable form, I'd sniff it up each nostril and rub the residue on my gums. <laughs> It's awful. And it kind of is, isn't it? Yeah. I, I early on when I first had a draft of "I Miss You When I Blink," I sent it. To, I hired a freelance editor. I wanted someone who did not know me from Adam to read the book and say, "No, this is not a book," or "Yes, this is a book." Uh-huh. Keep going. So I, I've asked around and I got some recommendations. I hired somebody I didn't even know, and she, one of her many wonderful pieces of feedback was on that line, and she said, "Ooh." Drug imagery. <laughs> Too harsh? <laughs> I was like, nope, I'm keeping that one. It is a little bit of an attention getter, but I'm going to keep it. <laughs> it got my attention. Um, so so this perfectionist tendency mm-hmm. that you have, um, how has that been a barrier? How, how or And how has that been a, a motivator or, mm-hmm. a, or a bonus to your writing life? It's both, I think. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's a motivator obviously, in that I want to get things right. So one, a, a good thing about my writing process and about my personality and how they go together is I'm not the type of writer who will write one draft and expect someone to publish it. Uh-huh. I'm not, you know, writing it down on the next day, sending it off going, who wants to print this? <laughs> because I am so fixated on getting it perfect, and I know it needs several more drafts before I get there. The downside is if you are somebody who doesn't see a job as finished until it is as close to perfect as it can get is that it's very hard for me to say a piece is done, which Mm -hmm. means I'm a slow writer because I'm going draft after draft after draft down to the drafts where nothing has changed here, but you've you've moved one comma. Let it go. Yeah. So your perfectionism doesn't keep you from starting. It keeps you from Declaring yourself done? It keeps me, it mostly keeps me from declaring myself done, but that's a good point. Sometimes it does keep me from starting because I don't even think an idea is good enough to run with yet. Or I think an idea is good, and I I know from experience that there's this sort of miserable middle part of of the experience where you've had a beautiful idea and you're now you're going to pin it down on paper and kill it, and it's going to be awful before it gets better again. And I just, 
and I think I, I can't do it. I can't. I can't take this great idea and make it awful because what if I never get it as perfect as it is in my head? And and then I'm extrapolating that thought all the way through, failing at it before I've even started it. So yeah, so it kind of gets in get my way all the it? time. It has now I get past it with experience. I can uh-huh. look back and say, look at all the times that I hit that point where I was like, no, it's not going to be any good, and I made myself sit down and I wrote through it and I edited through it and I got there. So now I have that to draw on. Earlier in my in my writing career, it was a lot of panic and mm-hmm. and I wasted a ton of time just like sitting paralyzed in front of a blank screen going, I I can't do this. It's not mm-hmm. it's not going to be any good. What am I going to do? Um so I really had to learn through forcing myself to sit down and keep going. Yeah. I have uh, about one perfectionist bone in my body. Like <laughs> And I, but, en- I envy you that that's wonderful. Yeah, well, I, I think I think my my wife would appreciate if I was a little bit more of a perfectionist <laughs> in most areas of life. But but the one the one place it ever presents itself is in writing. You know, I, I think that's pretty common that, that people's yeah. perfectionist tendencies uh, sort of metastasize in the mm-hmm. writing process. Mm-hmm. Where does it get you? Like where? Does, Mostly where does it not you? starting. Okay. Like you know, if if I sit here, you know, uh, this isn't this sentence isn't isn't. I mean, it kind of happens sentence by sentence sometimes. It yeah. varies. But but sometimes it's like, if this sentence isn't perfect, I'm not going to write this thing down. Yeah. And in my teaching, I'm always telling people, you know, commit to the bad first draft. Right. You know, it, got all this. <laughs> you, you know, know what to tell yeah. yourself. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's what you tell everyone else. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then eventually I just sort of reach a point where I'm like, well, I, like you said, I, I, I've been through this process enough that I know how it works. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I then have to, to say... Is this, is this perfectionism? Is it procrastination? Right. But, you know, of course, perfectionism is also a, a form of procrastination or can be. It is. Per- perfectionism is also a form of fear. Mm-hmm. It's um, you fear what happens if it's not perfect. And you fear that if you're not perfect, I mean, I'm getting this is we're about to veer really deep. But one of the things I write about in this book is believing that I have to prove my perfection in every possible way to prove my right to exist Mm -hmm. and to earn love and to earn the oxygen that I breathe. And so when you apply that to your work and you fear, okay, but if I sit down and write this and it's not perfect, it's a much bigger fear than just about writing. You know what I mean? Writing problems are almost never just writing problems. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, sometimes if you don't know where to put a comma, that's just a writing problem. Right, right. But that's not what people are really mm-hmm. that's not what really is holding people up mm-hmm. judging from some of the comments I've seen <laughs> <laughs> um, does does this perfectionism um, play itself out it, like are are you are you a, a punctuation bully when you see bad punctuation in other people's uh, work? I'm not a bully because I've learned people don't enjoy that. But like, yes, I yeah. do notice. A lot of people don't like to be bullied. That's been my experience. <laughs> people don't like it when you correct their grammar. Yeah. But yes, I do notice. Indeed. <laughs> um, okay. I don't think of perfectionists as being funny. But hmm. but you're funny. You're well, right. Your you. writing's funny. Thank you for saying so. Um, do, you, do you see any... any um, Disconnect between being a perfectionist and, and writing funny? 
I don't necessarily see a disconnect. I think in my particular case, those are just two of the flavors in my personality that happen to coexist. Mm-hmm. Um, the perfectionism started early, started when I was a little kid. My, my first academic experiences stoked that, and then I sort of saw a pattern happen where I did I succeeded at something, and I perceived that I got love for that, and I was like, got it, nailed it, cracked the code, I'm going to always get everything right. And then the humor, the humor probably came about in part from who raised me. My mother is hysterically funny. Um, I well, what gr- is what the phrase you had in your, when, you're, when she came into a, um, a room that was a mess, she said, this looks like the ass end of destruction? This is the ass end of destruction in here. <laughs> Where does that even come from? But it's perfect. And it's not just perfect in that it's sort of nonsense, yet it makes sense, but just the rhythm of it is perfect. The ass end of destruction. Um, Is she a southerner? Oh, yes. She grew up in Alabama. Uh Um, So I inherited a good sense of humor, and I was around it all the time. And I think humor is one of those things that you have to marinate in to develop it yourself. Um, But humor can also be a deflection Mm -hmm. mechanism and a coping mechanism. And when something is too hard or difficult to face head on, I am the type of person who cracks a joke about Mm it. I'm all about the inappropriate joke. Um, And so in in kind of a way, it goes hand in hand because if perfectionism is fear that things will go wrong and therefore your, your very existence is called into question, that's a really dark thing to look right at. Mm-hmm. So here, let's crack a joke instead. Yeah. So somehow they're all tied together. I guess the one reason it 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 feels, um, so you, you can you address this. But one 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 reason it feels um, the two things feel like they don't go together: perfectionism and, and humor. Is my understanding of perfectionists mm-hmm. from the outside? Mm-hmm. Is that they take the world just a little too seriously, right? That, that they they take the world ah. as seriously as the world expects expects you to saying. take it. Mm-hmm. And you know the world says you need to make an A, and you say, ah, okay, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas a you know humor requires that we have a little bit of ironic distance from from, from, the, from the things of the world. Yeah. But Am I wrong about that? You're not. I? You're not totally wrong. I see what you're saying, and I I do know some perfectionists who are definitely the take things too seriously type, and I probably sweat details more than I should. So that's mm-hmm. a taking things too seriously kind of thing. But perfectionism and comedy are also both about getting approval, hmm. which I think all human beings want. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly do. You know, I write yeah. about wanting the wanting the approval of other people, and comedy, good comedy writing is so difficult. Mm-hmm. So extremely difficult. Yeah. I know comedians who are very type A, and they work those jokes a yeah. hundred ways to Sunday until they get the yeah. perfect timing and the perfect word, and then they've got to work on how they deliver it so that the laugh hits just right. I think they, I think they can go hand in hand. Yeah. Now you're, you're. Now that you put it that way, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and I mean, if you see Seinfeld talk about how he puts together a joke, it's science, man. Yeah. It's really, it's really detailed. There's a, um, there's an essay in this book called "The Joy of Quitting," where I write about the short period of time in which I wrote for the Us Weekly Fashion Police, uh-huh. which is that section at the back of the magazine that everyone reads when they're getting their toes done at the mm-hmm. pedicure place, um, <laughs> with captions making fun of celebrities' outfits. And I quit that job. Um, for a variety of reasons, one of which was that I just couldn't stomach making fun of people anymore. Yeah. I, I, 
I had too much, I think I was having too much empathy <laughs> yeah. for the people I was supposed to be making fun of. But one of the things that, that drove me to accept it in the first place was, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to get this hit of approval every week where someone reads my funny line and they're laughing about it. I'm going to love that. Yeah. People that you didn't know. Right. You Strangers everywhere in the grocery store checkout line are going to laugh at what I say. Isn't that, that we're talking about this earlier today with some other podcast guest? It's this the idea of needing approval from people you don't know is really an odd thing. It is weird. Human beings are weird. Isn't mm-hmm. that funny that we want that? I can't even see the people in the grocery store checkout line. Why do I care what they're thinking? Uh, but the the idea. Somewhere in my mind is this idea that, yes, if I get their approval, I will feel better. But I won't. I won't even know. Yeah. It's wacky. But on social media, you get to at least see the, the little thumbs up. That's right. You get to see how many retweets you get. From people you don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the danger of social media. That's that Isn't addiction it? right there, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Can you talk to me about the, the title of your book is I Miss You When I Blink. Mm-hmm. A phrase that your six-year-old came up with. Yes. Um, why is that the title of your book? I love that phrase so much. I think I would have used it for something. I would have named a dog I miss you when I blink. <laughs> I would have named a television show I miss you when I blink. He said that, just to give background for listeners who haven't read it. Um, he's big now, so he, he's, he's taller than me, and he talks like Darth Vader. <laughs> but uh, when he was little, he was six years old, he was sitting on the floor of my office, which is was really my basement, but that's where I did my freelance mm-hmm. writing work. And I was hurrying through writing something, trying to hit a deadline, and I needed him to stay occupied. So I handed him a notepad, and I said, okay, you do your writing, and I'm going to do my writing, mm-hmm. and when we're both finished, we can go to the park, so here. <laughs> and I could hear him over there talking to himself and doing his little rhyme on the paper. And as he was rhyming, words that ended in ink he said a line i miss you when i blink and it stopped me in my tracks with what i was i couldn't pay attention to whatever i think i was writing a brochure about suitcases or something Mm -hmm. but um i stopped and i said wait what did you say and he said i miss you when i blink and at first i just thought that is the cutest thing i've ever heard so i took his when we left the office i took his little piece of paper and i tacked it up on the wall and i passed that piece of paper every day for months and years as i would walk down to go to work and because that, that little prompt was with me every day over a course of years as I was going through some of the things that I write about in this book, which include um, sort of coming to terms with the fact that the daily existence I was living in terms of uh, work and friendships and where I lived and the ways I chose to spend my time, that wasn't an existence I was happy in anymore. Um, I was also really starting to feel the acceleration of time. Mm-hmm. The kids were getting bigger. Um, I was feeling like my own time was starting to slip away. I could feel those hourglass that hourglass sand mm-hmm. going. Um, so the when I blink part sort of came to mean how fast time was going. And the I miss you part came to stand for in my brain. I miss who, not just who I was, but who I intended to be. Mm-hmm. I started out on adulthood going... All right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to marry this great guy that I found, and we are going to have two kids, and we're going to live in a house that has a yard, and we're going to send them to a good school, and I'm going to do this work. And I did all the things I set out to do, but I was still not happy. And so there was this sense in my mind that I was missing 
something or someone or something about myself. So all the things that I write through in this book, these essays where I'm grappling with all that stuff, match up with what that phrase came to mean for me. Yeah. Plus, I just it's fun to say. It is. I miss huh? you when I blink. Yeah. It's a good yeah. title. For, it had to be a title of something. Yeah, right. If I were a songwriter, I would have made it a song. <laughs> but I'm not a songwriter. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, the... I love the fact that it was a that it was composed by a six year old who may or may not have known what he was talking about. Oh, absolutely! I think there are other lines in this poem he wrote where "I miss you in the rink," okay, or the skating rink, and "I miss you in the sink." It doesn't even scan. It is, doesn't even make sense. Yeah. I miss you in the sink. Why are you in the sink? <laughs> You're six. You don't fit in the sink. Um, but it's it's almost like you know, truth is always trying to tell itself. Yes, <laughs> and Indeed. so this little six year old. Was the was the conduit that day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah. that's the first line, which has been funny. There there have been a, a few people that I've talked to who are like, "Oh, so this is a book about parenting?" Like, no, it's not. It's not no. a book about parenting, but a child gets credit for the title, yeah. and so he gets the first line of the book. <laughs> yeah, um, and so you, you, I've seen a picture you drew of a lion carrying around, a, pulling a wagon full of little lions. Oh yeah. And th- that yes. stand for the lion's former selves. Yes, which I think is is relevant to the idea of I miss you when you, you indeed. Blink. Yes, maybe could you could you connect those dots because yes. I, I have a sense those are connected, but I'm a little vague on how. Yeah, I forgot about that. So I um a little hobby that I do just to blow off steam is I I draw cartoons. Yeah, and I tend to draw cartoons of animals because they're easier to draw than people. Sure, you can use fur to sort of obscure the <laughs> fact that you don't really know the shape of a giraffe. Yeah. Um, and I drew a lion. It's I think it's somewhere in my Instagram. It's a, a lion, and he's dragging a little red wagon with lots of teeny tiny little lions. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, and I think this has been a year or two, he, the caption is something like, we're all carrying around all our past selves. Yeah. And all the people we were, or I guess all the lions we were, <laughs> all the lions we want to be, it's a lot to carry. But that's... You know, you you see on the on the face of somebody who they are right now, but everybody's got all their past selves in there too, and all the selves they haven't been. Everybody's got their dream selves in there too. Mm-hmm. Does that have any direct bearing on one's creative life? Well, it certainly output. does for me. <laughs> it does for me, and that that's what I was writing through in this book. Um, yeah, probably. I imagine it does for everybody because yeah. when you're creating, you're you're making something visible or audible in front of you out of the ingredients you have in your mind. Yeah. And in your mind, you're not just who you are in that moment while you're sitting at your drafting table. You're you yeah. when you were 6 and you're you when you were 20 and you're you when you were 30 and you're in your imaginary version of you when you're 80. Those are all in there. Yeah. They're all working together on whatever yeah. it is you create. My friend Jennifer Trafton talks about the one way to sort of you know, jumpstart the creative process mm-hmm. is to think about what did you love when you were a kid? Yeah. And and see what happens. Yep. Um, and, you know, I loved alligators when I was little and I still do. And, <laughs> and it's just all, it's all still there. You know, the, the yeah. little juvenile me liking yeah. alligators it overlaps with the you know, grown man yeah, me. That's a great that's a great piece of advice. There's a there's an essay in this book called Mermaids and Destiny. Um and somewhere in there I talk about how when I am brought in to talk at a school, which is 
rare because I write for adults, so people don't usually have me come in. <laughs> you and don't talk use to kids. your uh, right. your image of the snorting uh, snorting <laughs> success to right. both the I don't mention the cocaine when I talk <laughs> to kids. Um, but one thing I when I do one thing that I, I an exercise I have them go through is who were you before you wondered who you were. So. A wow. lot of us as adults are walking around going, who am I? What even am mm-hmm. I anymore? And so kind of like what your friend says, what I say to these teenagers is think back to when you were little. Think back to who you were before you even had the question of who am I? Yeah, wow. And look at the look at the, what you loved to do. Look at what mattered to you and the questions you like to ask about the world around you. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Um. Another writer friend who was in earlier this morning, uh, Helena Sorensen, said, um, and she was quoting T.S. Eliot, um, yesterday's, yesterday's words were for, no, last year's words were for last year's language. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And it, she, it, she was putting it in the context of being kind to yourself for, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the past selves that maybe, I mean, she was putting in the context of writing, you mm-hmm. know, that, that, that self who wrote this book a few years ago didn't know what you know now. Right. But be generous right. with yourself. Um, That's good advice because it is the experience of reading something you wrote in the past. First yeah. of all, if you go too far back in the past, it's just awful. You read the <laughs> things you wrote when you were 18 years old and you oh, just gosh. you will laugh and then also just want to sink into the sand. I don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to read anything I wrote when I was 18. But it But it's amazing how quickly you can get that distance and perspective on a piece of writing. Something you wrote, like you say, a year ago can seem like, mm-hmm. oh. How, how did I think that was how that should go? This needs to be different. But that's why people give the advice of putting a project in a drawer mm-hmm. for a length of time and then coming back to it to edit it. Because even if you can give it just two months, mm-hmm. that's enough time that you can go back and have something really valuable to add to it because you have evolved as a writer and a human being even in just those two months. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've written marketing copy. Indeed. Do you still do that? No. You've you've No. No, that was a way to, that was a great way to make a living or a, a portion of a living um when my kids were little and yeah. I I was no longer working full time. I did write marketing copy full time and then I I had kids and I there were so many freelance mm-hmm. clients who needed websites or brochures or speeches. I did a lot of speech yeah. writing. I did ghost writing for um like if you're a CEO and you have a point to make and you want to write an op-ed and you know your subject matter really well, but you're not a writer. Yeah. I used to always say, if you can teach it to me, I can teach it to anybody. Yeah. So I would sit down with people and they would explain to me their area of expertise and what they wanted to say. And then I would sort of absorb their voice and absorb the information and write it. And it would come out under their name. So I don't do that anymore. But it's it's a good it's a good way. It's a great way to be a working writer yeah. early on. Yeah. Oh, I think that, that I've done a lot of that work in my life, mm-hmm. and um, some, really some of the best training I've ever absolutely gotten as a writer. Because you can't be precious about your words when you have a lot of things to do and a lot of deadlines on you, and a, and a variety of different editors, some of whom may be erratic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you you've got to get it turned in and get it right. Yep. Um, I, I mean, just the, the fact that you have several deadlines a day, the fact that you, um, that you've got this, you know, I would, I'm sure you had this experience. You'd, you'd think, I don't have anything to say about luggage today. Yeah. But you know what? Eventually you do have something to say about luggage. I got to go find out what there is to say about luggage because yeah. it's my job to make it sound good. So yeah. I need to go interview whoever I need to interview at that company about why this is a great suitcase. And then I need to 
look at their business goals and figure out who are they speaking to? Who's their audience? What do they want to be the result of this piece of writing, even if it's a, a two-line mm-hmm. ad jingle? You know, yeah. you, you have to serve – the writing has to serve its purpose, and you can't get too caught up in your own precious artistic yeah. you know, goals of it's got to be a poem. You know, No, it doesn't. It's, it's got to sell suitcases. Yeah. Um, and also the fact that you're speaking in several different voices in one yes. day. Um, I, I don't, I would not like to go back to my life as a full-time copywriter, but I, but I'm very thankful Me too. You know, for, for that, for that experience. I just learned a, a ton. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good practice. Um, and, um, mostly I learned that there's always more where that came from. You think I've got nothing else to say about a bank. <laughs> yep. And then when the bank calls and says, that's not good enough, you got to say something else. Right, right. You, you can't, can. yeah, you can't go, um, no, that was perfect and beautiful <laughs> and you have to use it. You have to say, yes, ma'am, I will write it again and yep. come up with another way to do it. Yep. And it's amazing that there always is another way to do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And, uh, and ghostwriting is, that's an adventure too. I've done some it of that. Is. And it's, it's, I remember thinking, this is so weird. You know, people would talk about, oh, did you read that op-ed by so-and-so? It was so great. He, I love that line he said about blah, blah, blah. And I would think, oh, I said that line. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the deal. That's you don't get deal. to claim the line I know. if you there, get the paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the, as long as they put the, spell the name right on the paycheck, I don't have, <laughs> right. I don't have my na- name on the byline. Right. Yeah. Okay, um, let me see how we're doing on time. Okay. I think we're running out. Um, yeah, let me, let me ask you one last question. Yeah. And it's this. What writers make you want to write? Oh, what a great question. And that's This a, is not the same thing as who are your favorite writers? It's a, so this is a tough question for me to answer, not in that I can't come up with an answer, but I have so many. Um, being somebody, I'm not looking for excuses, Marilyn. I know, I'm, I'm just going to tell you. Answer. Working in book selling, I, I read voraciously. I'll tell you a couple. Actually, I'll tell you a pair. This is a pair. One that made me want to throw my laptop out a window, and one that made me want to get it back out of the bushes and write again. Okay. So when I was completing the final edits on this book, so not my final edits, but it had, the book had sold. I had gotten my editorial letter back from my editor, and she said, these are the changes I need you to make. And I was at that point where... I felt like I was just at the bottom of the mental and emotional barrel. I had nothing left to give it, but I had to dig deep and give it something else. Yeah. And I, it was so draining. Mm-hmm. My agent calls that period of time the pain cave. So I was like <laughs> deep in the dark of the pain cave. I made the mistake of reading an absolutely gorgeous memoir and essays. So same genre uh-huh. as this book. Similar thematic territory as well called I Am, I Am, I Am by Maggie O'Farrell. It is so good, so, so beautifully written that I actually, I had to take a week and a half off editing. Really? Because every time I would sit down in front of my words, I would go, why am I doing this? I don't need to put this book in the world. I should just tell everyone to read her book. And it it really kind of stopped me and slowed me down. But the book that got me going again, the book that made me want to keep writing, again, similar genre, similar... um, some similar themes. It's called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi. It's not really a how-to. It's a, it's a memoir about his life, about his many identities as a writer and an activist and a friend and a 
gay man, and it starts when he's a teenager, and it goes through now, and it does have some creative advice in it, but it's mostly autobiographical writing. Um, Two wonderful books. The first one made me want to throw my laptop out a window, but this one, for some reason, made me go, I feel like if I worked hard enough... I could do this. Yeah. And it and I'm not saying that his book wasn't as good and therefore it seemed more attainable. Right. I've I've and it's been a year that I've been talking about this and I've yet to put my thumb on what it was, but there was something in the way that he wrestles with big personal questions that made me go, there's room for all of us to do this and yeah. I need to sit down and keep going. Mhm. Yeah. So there you go. That's great. Cuz you're you're looking for those people who do what you do a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Um and he's also he's a teacher, and so there's something. Even though his book was not a how-to book, and it's not a, it's not a book teaching you how to do anything. There's some, it comes through somewhere in there comes through this message of, you can do this. We need to tell our stories. Sit back down, <laughs> and get back to work, and quit moaning and groaning about how everybody's book is better than your book. Yeah, because like the the comparison. Oh, it'll kill you. Yeah. It's it it and it's not very it's just not especially helpful. No, not at all. Um, and yet almost unavoidable. Mm-hmm. So my advice to you, Marilar, stop comparing yourself to others. <laughs> good did, did you come here for advice? Is it yeah, yes. what you're here for? I did. Thank you. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm so so <laughs> this glad. This has been so worthwhile. <laughs> so so glad to help. Um, no, I mean when we when we write for approval, when when mm-hmm. we write for what we can get out of it. Mm-hmm. Man, we find out how what a big hole our bucket has in it. Yep. <laughs> yep. And and it's I mean it sounds like you're is it Alexander Chi? Alexander Chi. C H E E. C H E E. Sounds like that was an invitation to to love your reader, to serve other people, to mm-hmm. to 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 not think in terms of what is this what is this project going to do for me, but what can I give mm-hmm. through this project? Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. It's a great. I'm going to check it out. Um, Mary Laura, thanks so much for being here. This has been so much fun, and I, I just love the insights that you've given. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, I hope we can do it again someday. Yes, indeed. All right. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song Finch in the Pantry as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.